Congress has passed three phases of coronavirus relief packages, with a fourth potentially on the way very soon. How can Opportunity Zone businesses seek relief? And how can Opportunity Zones assist with the economic recovery? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. On Monday, March 30th, Ashley Tyson and I at OZ Pros hosted a Zoom meeting with 80 of our most engaged Opportunity Zone participants in our network. The Zoom meeting included presentations from Ashley, as well as Howard Madelon, an attorney at Olander Feldman in New Jersey, and Reed Thomas, Executive Vice President for NES Financial, one of the leading fund administrators in the qualified Opportunity Zone industry. What follows is an audio recording of the full Zoom meeting, which includes both the formal presentations as well as the attendee Q&A. For a video recording of the meeting and a PDF of the slide deck as well, head on over to opportunitydb.com podcast and find today's episode. You'll be able to click links to watch the video presentation of the meeting as well as download the slide deck. And I also have links to additional resources that were discussed during the Zoom meeting as well. Again, you can head over to opportunitydb.com slash podcast and find the show notes for today's episode to find all of those resources. And now without further ado, here is the full audio recording of our Zoom meeting recorded on Monday, March 30th, 2020. Thank you very much for joining this Zoom meeting hosted by OZ Pros, Opportunity Zone Strategy Session, Final Regs, Coronavirus, and Q&As. And presenting during this meeting today will be my partner at OZ Pros, Ashley Tyson. Ashley is a business attorney and Opportunity Zone consultant in Charlotte, North Carolina. Also presenting will be Howard Madelon, partner of employment practices at Olander Feldman in New Jersey. And we'll also hear from Reed Thomas, executive vice president at NES Financial. And Reed is joining us today from the California Bay Area. So quick, very quickly, the agenda for today's call, we're going to have a presentation on the COVID-19 relief legislation, very timely, and some SBA resources to go along with that. Uh, we will do a brief walkthrough of some of the biggest points from the final regs, which came out in December. Uh, Reed Thomas from NES Financial is going to speak a little bit about some timely matters relating to opportunity zones in the current environment. And then, like I said, we'll have some time for some participant Q&A toward the end of the meeting. And now, without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Ashley to begin today's presentation. Ashley, go ahead. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be in front of our audience. And uh, thank you, everybody, for participating in this Zoom call. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, sharing with you some of the stuff that, uh, that has recently come up. So uh, as everybody's aware, you know, our, our world has been uh, kind of turned upside down relative to this COVID-19 thing. And so uh, we're all, uh, you know, in one way or another dealing with it. So that's what, uh, that was one of the main goals of what we were trying to accomplish on this call. Uh, so, uh, you know, I am an attorney, so I've got to hit it with this legal disclaimer. And uh, this is not legal advice because we're on a big gigantic Zoom call. 
And so if, uh, if you feel like you need legal advice with, re with respect to any of this, uh, give us a call and we'll be happy to coordinate that for uh, uh, later on. Um, so our, our first speaker, we're going to let uh, Howard jump in here first. Uh, he is a, uh, an employment litigator uh, with Olander Feldman, and uh, he has been representing clients with respect to human capital management for 30 years. And uh, I was actually on another call where, uh, where Howard presented, and based upon that call, uh, you know, and some of the stuff that he was talking about, we thought it was very timely that uh, that he get in here and give everybody an update about uh, about some of the things that are embedded in the legislation that can impact both opportunity zone funds starting up, QSEBs, and existing businesses. So we wanted to hit that from a high level first. So Howard, I'm going to turn it over to you now. And you let me know when you want me to hit slides. Yeah, you can go ahead and, and, and roll. So first of all, thank you for the opportunity. Um, uh, the most terrific thing I heard today is that I've been practicing law for 30 years, um, which just makes me that much older. Thank you very little. Um, so we've had a, a lot of updates in the last uh, couple days. In fact, updates as most recently as yesterday from the Department of Labor on the Coronavirus Relief Act. The good thing is that the new news is all good. Um, they're finally beginning to clarify the small business exemption for what I call the child care portion of the Coronavirus Relief Act. And we'll go through the slides. And as we go, we'll kind of explain things. Okay, so this is what probably everybody wants to talk about, which is this issue of furlough versus layoff. So there are a number of buckets now to the calculus, and my guidance um, is being revised uh, almost weekly based upon the complexity of the situation for small businesses and the new opportunities that are available for loans. This is your opportunity, if there wasn't one before, ladies and gentlemen, to clean house. And by that, I mean putting the furlough and layoff to the side. The first thing to always ask yourself is, do I have employees that are currently on staff that I've only allowed to be on staff because we, had, we needed extra bodies and candidly, we're in a position now where none of that's necessary. And because the water level of business is receding, we're beginning to see the dry cracks. Let them go. Let them go now. Do not furlough them because furlough is basically an invitation for them to come back to work. The key difference between furlough and layoff, of course, is the furlough, they remain employed. Huge, huge thing to remember, because with a furloughed employee, any benefit they have under federal or state law as an employee remains with them even if you're not paying them. Layoff, of course, you are letting them go. And one change we need to make to this going forward, the Coronavirus Relief Act was supposed to go into effect April 2nd. That's what they told us. It's, in fact, going into effect April one. So if you're gonna do layoffs, you have to do them today or tomorrow. Otherwise, you'll run afoul of the act. Let's go to the next slide just to see if, if we're gonna talk about coronavirus as we go through this. Okay, we can go through all the slides and I think it's important to share these out because it will play into your calculus of furlough versus leave versus loan. We're adding loan in because of the CARE Act SBA provision. But here's something brand new that you don't know because it just came out yesterday from the Department of Labor. 
The question was raised way back when, when the Coronavirus Relief Act provisions were announced, that the Department of Labor was going to create this small business exemption for businesses under 50 employees. And for those of you who have companies of 50 or more, you know that the Coronavirus Relief Act is an adjunct or an extension of what was called the Federal Family Medical Leave Act, which only applied at one point to businesses 50 or higher. So I am sure in the last couple of weeks since the DOL announced the law and said that they would provide guidance on the exemptions, that the DOL website has been spammed with requests for exemptions. So what they've decided to do is said, forget that now. We're gonna actually allow the businesses who are under 50 employees to self-exempt only as to what we're calling the child care provision. And the child care provision, and I'll, I'll break this down, make it simple. There's caring for yourself, there's caring for someone else who's sick, and then there's caring for uh, kids that are healthy because of school situation, okay? And I'm just gonna pull this guidance up because literally it just came up. So the way that the Coronavirus Relief Act works for the worst provision, which is that 200 per day or $12,000 for the 12 weeks, that no longer applies to a business of 50 or under where an authorized officer of the business can make this determination. And it should be done, I believe, in some kind of written memo or guidance that the business will maintain on file. One, the provision of the paid sick or expanded medical leave would result in the business's expenses and obligations exceeding business revenue and cause the business to operate at under minimum capacity. Or two, the absence of those employees would entail a substantial risk to the financial health or operational capabilities of the business because of their specialized skills. Now that would apply, I have a client, for example, who's got 85 employees in New Jersey and they're a manufacturing business, okay? If the employees decided en masse to say, even though they haven't in the past, you know, I think it'd be a good time for me to stay home with the kids, that would work a death sentence for the business, which is a critical business operating in the medical provider space. The third exemption, and remember these are or provisions, so you don't have to comply with all of them, just with one of them, is that there's not enough workers ready, willing, and able and available to perform the services necessary for the business to operate. Critical stuff, right? Because this was the worst fear of all of our businesses. You'd have a 50 or employer under business. Most of us are small business owners. My firm is about 30 employees. Where all of a sudden, all the employees who are capable of teleworking say, I can no longer telework because I have to take care of my kid. Well, thank God the DOL got something right and they, and they posted this guidance. This is official DOL guidance, by the way. Interestingly enough, you are not going to see it anywhere but the DOL website or, you know, reported from news sources. Very, very important for you guys to take a look at the latest guidance. I'm going to send around the link after the broadcast to where all the new FFCRA guidance is. And I'm guessing every single week they're going to add to their frequently asked questions. Uh, amazingly, this is buried at question 58 and 59. So if you've gone through the five pages, you won't find it, okay? And the news uh, sources are only slowly coming up to speed. The only reason I found it is I was going to publish 
a list to a client. I said, oh, that's odd. There's more than 39 questions today. And you start seeing all the other questions below it. Really important that if you have an FFCRA situation, whether it's the emergency paid leave of the 10 days or what I'm calling this child care portion of the relief, that you take a look at the, the site. So in terms of how the uh, paid leave provides, right? So we're gonna go back to that slide, great. I saw the provisions. It falls into one of two buckets. The first bucket is I'm caring for myself, I'm caring for a loved one, I think I might have corona. 10 days of paid leave, 10 days, okay? That's critical because after the 10 days expires, you're on unpaid FMLA, unpaid FMLA, which for those business owners who've never encountered what FMLA is, effectively what it means, these people are out of work, but you must provide them with a job when they return. And I think we're going to see some new guidance from the DOL on that as well. I, I've heard rumors, although I haven't actually seen it in the law, that that might not apply to businesses of 25 employees or under, but we'll get there. For now, if they're out, they're out sick, they think they have corona, uh, you have other situations that happen today for one of my clients, they're told by a doctor that because of their COPD, which is a breathing disorder, that they should absolutely stay out of work. Let them go. Let them stay out of work. Let them take advantage of the law when the law comes into place. And then after that, it's 10 weeks of paid time off. They can apply for uh, disability under irrelevant state law in New Jersey. We, we call it uh, family leave insurance and uh, TDI, temporary disability insurance. They can apply for that. The other important thing that um, the DOL got wrong. So many states, including New Jersey and New York, have what they call their own separate law called earned sick time leave. This was passed last year in New Jersey and New York that provides employees for a whole variety of reasons, including needing to be home, with five additional days of paid time off. That is required by state law, doesn't matter whether you have corona or not, I've been on the books for a while now. For most employers, it operates from in New Jersey and New York from one employee forward. That five days had to be provided at the beginning of the calendar year. So for your employees who are working, who are taking advantage of the coronavirus law, they will get one week of earned sick time under New Jersey law. And that is, by the way, full pay. Then they will get two weeks of the, of the leave that's provided under the FFCRA, but that is capped. That's capped at 511 per day to a maximum of 5110, okay? Really important to know. There's a difference between that law operating, pull my own slides up, and what I'm calling this childcare relief, okay? So, if you're applying for the child care relief and one of the reasons that you're home is because you're either caring for an individual who's subject to an order or self-quarantine, your wife gets sick. You're caring for a son or daughter because the school's closed. That is paid at two-thirds base pay at a maximum of 200 per day or the 12,000 that's listed at the bottom. And as we develop questions, if you have questions, we can either do it today. You can send me questions, send, send the questions to the guys 
uh, and I'll be happy to answer them for any business who needs some help. Okay, we can move on to the next slide. Thank you. All right, so provisions for paid leave, it's really, it's capped at 10,000 per quarter, but it's really 12,000 for this emergency leave. Um, the requirements are in effect on April 1, but they are not retroactive. They are not prior to Wednesday of this week. And Howard, this, uh, this slide was prepared before we got that, uh, that update from the Department of Labor website. And so right. we'll, we'll amend this slide to include that information. And then we'll also include on here a link to, to that information from, uh, from the Department of Labor. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, thank you, Howard. Uh, anything else that you wanted to throw in there? Um, other so than one other really important thing, and I know you're going to touch on the loans. So yeah. here's the true story on the guidance, right? Because everyone said, well, how does the existence of the loans affect your guidance on furlough or layoff? And by the way, on, on the front of furlough or layoff, here's the practical guidance. If you care about these employees, A, B, you absolutely need them for the business at the point where the business will come back, or C, you're concerned that in some markets, for example, let's say logistics uh, transport, that if you don't furlough them and they're laid off, that when the, when the economic condition gets better, that they will go to work for Amazon fulfillment, which they will, then you should furlough them. Layoffs are permanent. They will not forget the fact that you laid them off if they even think that the business is capable of continuing. So let's be honest about that. But as far as the loans go, you know, at our firm, we started really looking carefully at the SBA guidance and we provided that in a separate set of, of um, PDF to Ashley to circulate around after this call. Um, our view is it's really not free money, okay? Because at the end of the day, the loan forgiveness is, uh, is capped at 100,000, right? So if you, you're gonna get 100,000 back, which means that you're still out all the loan funds. So the truth is, if you have to do something and you need to do it now, the new guidance is reduce your current staff levels to essential personnel. And by that, I mean those who are absolutely critical to operating the business currently. The non-essential personnel are those who could be useful to the business, who would be useful for the business, but will probably not be needed for a couple of months, given A, that we've got the lockdown now until the end of April, and B, we know that it's gonna take a while for us to get our loans. The true story is for those who are looking just at the loans and the availability of the loans, I can give you some practical guidance. Chase Manhattan Bank, for example, who is one of the premier SBA lenders, has told its clients that they will not have the applications up for the SBA through Chase for two weeks, two weeks. So you're sitting here thinking about your payroll and how you're gonna be relieved automatically. I can tell you, it's not happening anytime fast. So the guidance is balanced. Take care of your essential personnel, reduce the number of non-essential personnel, and then apply for all the guidance that Ashley's gonna give you on the loan funding and otherwise. That is the best way to hedge your bets against the possibility that the loan process is daunting, that the websites don't come up, that the SBA comes back with a series of questions you did not anticipate, and you're sitting there for four full weeks without having gotten any relief from the government. And that's basically it. 
Awesome. Thanks, Howard. And we will have Howard's contact information in the, uh, the show notes slash the slides that we'll be sending around to everybody as well. Okay, so uh, going and I'm going to hit this really fast about uh, going through on the, uh, the coronavirus and the economy and basically what the government is doing with respect to how they're uh, in initiating relief. So they did it in three phases. So phase one was basically like, let's dump a whole bunch of money into research, rapid response, vaccines, uh, loan subsidies, and that kind of thing. And that's where the first round of the emergency relief through the SBA itself came out. Phase two was the stuff we were just talking about, about um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the elements of kind of expanding uh, the FMLA and uh, in other pieces of that additional funding, that kind of thing, um, you know, to implement critical services. And then phase three is the CARES Act that was, uh, was just passed recently and, uh, and just came out of that. Phase three probably being the, I think, probably the most important one that people will be interested in. So I'm going to go through this, right? I mean, we kind of hit it on a, a high level at phase one. And you guys can certainly go through these slides. If you've got any questions about this stuff, we can either hit them in the questions at the end of this, or you can shoot us a, an email, uh, or we can hit it later on. We can uh, round up after. Um, this is phase two. So like I said, kind of ex expanding the FMLA and, and getting some of the other things in there that, uh, that, that Howard was just talking about. And then this is the big one, phase three. So this one is the one that's going to be sending each and every one of you your checks out, um, you know, based upon what your income qualifications are and that kind of thing. Um, there was also significant provisions included in there for businesses, uh, including deferral of uh, employee share of taxes. Um, the, there's a big one in here, and we'll hit this a little bit later on, but uh, on net operating losses carry back. Um, an increased interest expense deduction for folks that are, you know, for loans and that kind of thing, and accelerating the quip deduction. Um, we're going to jump into this as well on the SBA in the uh, loan forgiveness in the next slide. Um, and then, uh, you know, other stuff that they dropped in there uh, for student loans and that kind of thing. Forgive all your, your remaining student loans that are out there for everybody on the call. Just kidding. Um, so the business tax relief, so deferral of the employer share, that's 6.2% of Social Security or self-employment tax, um, and then having it paid in December 31st, 2021, and then in 2022. Uh, net operating losses from 2018, 2019, or 2020 will be eligible for a five-year carryback, uh, and the 80% of taxable income limitation will be temporarily removed. I'm gonna I'm gonna expand upon this a little bit in in heavier detail about specific application to opportunity zones, but that is significant because what it enables people to do is to uh, to then they can effectively take any kind of depreciation expense that they're incurring this year and run it back to get a refund on taxes that they paid in 2018 and 2019 which is really significant for opportunity zone deals that have a significant amount of depreciation because their investors will be able to take advantage of that in order to offset other sources of income. So 
Uh, there was a temporary increase in the interest expense deduction from 30 to 50% of AGI, or adjustable taxable income. And then, like I said before, the QIP uh, uh, acceleration. And then it automatically extended to July 15th. I think that's kind of old news by now. Um, so this is, a, this is the uh, SBA 7A loan program that they initiated. And this is available to employers with fewer than 500 employees. It's up to $8 million, but it's based upon two and a half months of payroll. Uh, and then, and this goes into kind of what Howard was talking about, that loan forgiveness applies when the loan's used for payroll. And I actually think that they may have cut out the rent utilities more. I actually think that it's actually just payroll now. So we may need to edit that slide. Uh, a lot of this was in flux over the weekend on what the final terms of the, uh, of the legislation was. For, so forgive us for uh, any of the specifics in that. Um, and we will get confirmation on that before we send that out. Uh, repayment ability is not a requirement, but uh, you were required to have been in business with employees on February 15th. Uh, and the government guarantee increases to 100%. They also put some incentives in there to the lenders that are actually really um, are really good and are, are going to make it so that pretty much everybody who's in the SBA game is going to be looking to make these loans and folks who are not in the SBA game are going to be looking to jump in. And like I said before, this is structured through banks and their SBA loan process. So the Paycheck Protection Program versus the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. So the difference between these is that the PPP, right? And um, my mind goes back to a 90s song <laughs> with similar uh, initials, uh, but it's based on payroll, debt obligations, that kind of thing incurred before February 15th. So that's um, two and a half times businesses averages, the business's average monthly payroll, and it comes in at a fixed 4%. And there's no payment for the first six to 12 months, and then it's on a 10-year term. And the forgiveness is up to 100% with approval, but, uh, but as Howard said, it caps out, so you need to be paying particular attention to the caps. Uh, the economic injury disaster loan, right? This is for payroll, fixed debts, fixed debts, accounts payable, or any other expenses that can't be paid because of the disaster. And that's up to 2 million bucks, and it's 3.75% for a small business and 2.75% nonprofits. Uh, the repayment term on that one is up to 30 years, but it is not eligible for forgiveness. So you're going to want to weigh the two of those, particularly in light of what Howard was talking about with respect to how this will be tied into your payroll or how it is tied into payroll. And for startups like QZB startups that are getting it going, the PPP is not uh, it's not going to, well, unless you have payroll that you already have, um, you know, you're not going to be eligible for that one, but arguably you could be a candidate for the EIDL. All right. So how long does it take? So, you know, they, they're talking that they're going to try to have applications in. Um, I know that they, the SBA lenders that we've been talking to have been getting inundated with requests. And, uh, and so to the extent that you have an SBA contact, you're gonna wanna go ahead and reach out to them. And uh, if you don't, then we can certainly uh, hook you up with one. Um, so 
they're trying, once again, they're trying to get money out as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, the president said this Friday, but I'm not seeing that one coming. Um, it will actually cover salaries for owners um, as well, as long as that, uh, that you know, you're actually on payroll. Um, there's not any provisions for K-1 partners who receive guaranteed payments. Um, and it's only for compensation that's under $100,000. So credit cards and AP or so if you're, if you're running your, your business on credit cards and you're using that for AP or you're, you've got kind of regular trade payables, those are not covered uh, if it doesn't pertain to employee payroll. Um, there's no need to, so once again, this is one of the other provisions in there, no need to file extensions uh, for the April 15th extension. Um, and then once again, there's no revenue requirements, you just have to have payroll. And then this is interesting because it averages the number of employments or employees in 2019 versus 2020. And that percentage accounts uh, towards the amount is forgivable, kind of in, in line with uh, what Howard was talking about. So let's talk about coronavirus recovery and opportunity zones. So there's, um, there's some new lingo out there based on COVID. Like you got folks that are not practicing social distancing and uh, those are called COVIDs. And um, I'm coining a new term today called COVID delays. Um, and so there's been a, a number of questions about opportunity zones with respect to COVID and what's happening. So does a QOF get extra time to deploy capital um, because of delays? Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that the answer on that one's probably gonna be no. Um, because it, it's set, there's no language in the, either the legislation or the regs that, uh, that provide for additional time for the QOF. But a QOZ could potentially get extra time and an extra 24 months in the working capital safe harbor um, because of this federally declared disaster area that was in the language of the final regs. And uh, this may be able to apply across the country because of the national disaster declaration by the president. But there's still some final questions about whether Section 501B was sufficient or whether he'll have to actually issue a Section 401A, the major disaster declaration. Um, so interestingly, that extension to July 15th did not extend the partnership or ex-corporation March 15th deadline. So the deadline for 180 days after the partnership tax year is still September 15th. So that the provision that allows you 180 days until uh, the partnership's tax filing deadline is still uh, being counted from March 15th. So I'll make it September 15th to deploy capital into the QOF. So some thoughts about how uh, opportunity zones, I guess, not necessarily take advantage of this, but how they could position themselves better for um, you know actually being a uh, an instrumental piece in you know how we're dealing with COVID. So one of the big ones that everybody's talking about is supply chain redomestication, right? So onshoring effectively, uh, or reshoring, if you will, uh, and this is particularly for medical supplies. So if you've got a business that's got any shot at being able to, you know, to make a difference and to be spitting out masks or other equipment, that kind of thing, then, uh, you know, by all means, you should be jumping in on uh, trying to get that done in an opportunity zone. One of the other things, and um, this is actually from the EIG webinar earlier today, is that, uh, you know, folks 
within the opportunity zones and particularly some of the community organizations that are facilitating the opportunity zones and interactions amongst all the state agencies have actually been instrumental in getting uh, you know, groups that normally don't talk to each other to actually start working together. And so I think that that's gonna be one of the plays that could be a, uh, a game changer here, is that for the first time we're seeing a consolidation of information relative to all of the different uh, grants and funding and that kind of thing that's available. You know, we're starting to see that get consolidated into, uh, you know, kind of group pages and into resources that are helping the communities tap those resources and helping them get them into the small businesses that can actually make these things happen. So once again, kind of another encouragement to, to be talking to your economic development folks, be talking to your chamber of commerce, be talking to the groups or finding out if there's groups in your area that can assist with that type of stuff about coordinating those resources into a concerted effort. And this is actually probably the, the, the biggest one that I think could be a, um, uh, a, a great marketing play for funds, and particularly for funds or QOZBs that have significant amounts of depreciation that are available in the first couple of years. Is that, like I said before, is that folks, taxpayers with excess losses in real estate can now deduct that against income from other sources, and you can carry back that depreciation to losses to 2018 and 2019, and it also removed the cap on it. So if you've got uh, a mobile home park, if you've got something that's uh, you know, invested in, into personal property, so like a hotel deal that combines the, you know, your, uh, your FF&E, your TVs, your beds, all that kind of stuff into your overall development, and I think that you could actually be fairly attractive to somebody that's got income from other sources because you're going to allow them to be able to take that depreciation and apply it towards that income, even from previous years. So uh, every Opportunity Zone project that's out there as a result of that should really look long and hard at a cost segregation study so that that way you can separate what's in your project that's going to be personal property and gets a faster depreciation schedule from what's actual real property that's gonna be depreciated over a longer period of time. And like I said, any projects with any way to advance that depreciation loss should really look at, be looking at uh, how they can do that. So uh, I'm gonna to touch on this real quick uh, on the Opportunity Zone final regs and some of the biggest takeaways from that. Uh, you know, the, the we, we kid around that, uh, that the final regs were, they were awesome. And they basically gave us almost everything we wanted except one thing. And that one thing was specifically eliminated and called out inside of the Opportunity Zone regs is for existing property owners to be able to sell their property into a QOF or to a QOZB that's owned by a QOF and then be able to reinvest those funds back into the deal. It was really unfortunate because you know, there's lots of deals that are out there that could get capitalized this way by effectively getting seller financing and then allowing the sellers to take advantage of their role and the rollover into the deal. And so one of the things that uh, the Novogratic Working Group has submitted and that I think a, a couple other groups have submitted to Treasury for uh, additional guidance on is to try and get a carve out if you're not going to be more than 20% of the fund. 
And so uh, to specifically allow that for folks that are going to have a portion of it rolled back over, but they're obviously not just doing it in order to create a gain for themselves. So uh, the final regs additionally allowed um, some flexibility associated with Section 1231 gain. So the way that the Section 1231 gains worked in the second round of regs was that you actually had to wait until the end of the year to figure out whether your losses and your gains offset and whether you were going to have a net loss or a net gain. And the final regs actually allow you to take the, gain, to take the gains and to roll those over into an opportunity zone fund and then be able to use the excess losses against other income, which was actually pretty significant. That was actually great for our industry. So uh, there was also, we, I, I mentioned this earlier uh, when we were looking at a different slide, but uh, it provided a 180 day deadline from the partnership or the, uh, the uh, corporation for an S Corp tax year filing date. So when the tax return is due, the time period for an individual partner or owner inside of that entity to reinvest their proceeds into a qualified opportunity fund is now 180 days from March 15th. And I wish that we could have gotten the CARES passed extending all deadlines to July 15th because then we probably would have gotten another uh, three months on that. But hey, it is what it is. Uh, I also mentioned this before as well, that the final regs gave us an opportunity to be able to aggregate assets uh, between personal property and uh, in actual real property for purposes of the substantial improvement test. So like in a hotel, they use the hotel example that a hotel, if you're, you're doing a property improvement plan and you're improving the property by 2 million, but your building value is $4 million, you can use $2 million worth of uh, beds, furniture, that kind of thing, as part of your substantial improvement test. And that's significant, particularly as it relates to what you can give your investors and what investors will be able to take as an offsetting deduction now that uh, they've removed that cap for 2020 and backwards into 2019 and 2018. So, it also allows uh, for an asset aggregation for purposes of parcels of property. And so it allows you to effectively uh, allocate the substantial improvement across a number of parcels, as long as those can be considered kind of one parcel, because before it was on an asset by asset basis. Um, another significant item that was really nice is that they expanded the working capital safe harbor to 62 months for startups if that startup has a 62-month business plan that's going to show how they're going to deploy that working capital. Uh, and then the final piece, and this was actually really, uh, was really great as well, is that they highlighted that, uh, that any asset sale after a fund has held its interest for 10 years will get capital gains forgiveness. So no matter whether you're divesting your interest at the QOF itself, or whether you are divesting at the QOZB level or at the individual asset level underneath the QOZB, as long as you've held that asset and it's a capital asset which been, has been held for 366 days, then you're not going to pay any capital gains, which is significant because what that means is that any qualified opportunity fund that's got 10 years of investment 
into, you know, a taxpayer that's got 10 years into a qualified opportunity fund, they can then transact inside of the opportunity zones and effectively be able to not pay any taxes as long as that, uh, that asset's been held for 366 days. So if you've got a fund that's got 10 years of time and you go and you buy a house and you sell it 367 days later, you don't pay any capital gains on that gain. Similar with businesses or any other assets that qualify as qualified opportunity zone business property. So uh, I'm going to turn it over now to uh, Reed Thomas with NES Financial. Hey, Ashley, uh, right, just, just before, before we turn it over to Reed, I just wanted to, I know we had some people come in late, so I just wanted to reiterate that we are gonna save about the last 10 minutes of this hour for some Q&A. So if you do have any questions, please use the chat feature it's in the control panel of your Zoom window. Um, sorry, Ashley, just wanted to point that out in case anybody had a question. That's how they can ask it. Uh, go ahead, Ashley. Now I'm going to turn it back over to you, Jimmy. Go ahead, and I'll let you introduce Reed okay. and uh, what he's going to talk about. Yeah, well, Reed is uh, Executive Vice President and General Manager of NES Financial Specialty Finance Administration. Uh, they've been dealing with EB-5 compliance for a long time, and uh, they've gotten into the Opportunity Zone Fund Administration uh, full speed ahead right when this thing came out. So, Reed, uh, take it away. And Ashley, you're, gonna, you're still working the slides for Reed, I believe. Correct. Reed, do you want the first slide? Yes, please. Look at that. Look at that. Thank you. And first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and uh, let's just go right into the, into the meat of this. Um, you did such a good job on the introduction. Um, I'll be brief here, but just a little bit uh, background on who NES is. We're a Silicon Valley technology company that was started with this idea that there's certain initiatives, financial investment initiatives that get created from time to time with this intention of doing good. But for a number of different reasons, they, they sometimes fail. And so we felt that by developing technology that was purpose-built for these kinds of initiatives or programs, that we could help them ultimately succeed. So as Jimmy uh, articulated, we really focus on these specialty types of funds. We're a fund administrator that builds technology specific for the fund type that we're dealing with. So in opportunity zones, that's really a mashup of a private equity investment fund, a tax incentive program and a economic development program or social impact program all mashed into one. And so we built a solution to, for that. We come from other sectors that, that are well known in the real estate industry. Um, some like EB5, similar to opportunity zones in that it's really a job creation for an investment slash job creation program. Um, we've had success in the opportunity zone space. And so I'm going to share some data today, uh, things that we've been observing across our customer base. Uh, today, we have over 75 Opportunity Zone funds under contract. We think that makes us the largest provider in the space. And, and as a result of that, we have an opportunity to, to see a lot what's going on. Yeah, next slide, actually, please. Uh, Sorry about so, that. No problem. So today, I, uh, you know, when, when the whole COVID-19 thing started, um, and we could sort of sense this economic uncertainty coming, um, we reflected on whether this would be good or bad for opportunity zones. And uh, being half full, you naturally want to trend towards, well, how is this a good thing? And at first I thought this was a crazy idea, but the more people I bounce this off of, uh, the more time that's gone on, maybe it's not so crazy. So 
walk this through you today with you today. I mean, maybe this whole chaos um, caused by this virus is making opportunity zones attractive. Maybe it's the right time and the right place for the right solution because there's these three sort of converging forces happening. Um, I think there's been significant realized capital gains happening. Um, there's a spirit we're seeing emerge in the communities about doing good, so a spirit of positive impact. Um, and with the economic downturn looking us right in the eye, maybe it's a time for a convert, conservative investment strategy. And all those things play together and put opportunity zones sort of in the, in the center of it. So next slide, please. So I think you've seen pictures like this. Um, you know, we've, we're coming off the uh, most significant bear market in the country's history. Um, and just over the last couple of months, there's been a massive drop in terms of the value um, of, the, uh, of the overall market. So there was some panicked selling or some quick selling that was going on. Um, after this kind of run up in the market since 2009, um, it's likely that significant amounts of those sales were done uh, at a gain. And so presumably this could be the most massive capital gain harvesting event um, ever. And as a result of that, there may be gains. We used to talk about opportunity zones and how there were $6 trillion sitting on the sidelines. Well, maybe now a good portion of that is available for in, uh, investment. Uh, so next slide, please. Um, and so a lot of folks probably haven't um, decided what to do with the, those, uh, those realized gains at this point. Um, but when you look at opportunity zones and you look at the types of investments folks might be interested in as a result of the, uh, the downturn here in the market, um, counter-cyclical types of investments might become or might become more attractive. Um, some of them are listed here, things like multifamily housing, be it affordable or not, student housing, those kinds of things. The most Across our database, the most prominent type of asset class that's been invested in has been real estate. Within the real estate uh, sector, it's been housing. And this is how the, sort of the housing uh, category from our client base has broken down. So you can see a significant amount of investment that is well suited to opportunity zones. So we have lots of capital gains likely being realized. We have folks maybe interested in counter cyclical investments given the, the pending downturn in the, in the economy here. And so those may be a good fit for opportunity zones. And next slide, please. And finally, um, what we're seeing is impact as a uh, desire continues to grow in importance for investors. We run quarterly webinars, and each webinar, we've been doing this since 2018 when, op, when we got started in Opportunity Zones, and every time we query the audience as to what their primary motivation for investing in OZs happens to be. Um, and you can see, you know, the green was 2018, averaged out, red bars 2019. And then we just did a webinar at the end of uh, Q1 20, or in February, just before this uh, well, maybe just when the fears were starting to really boil here. Um, and what you can see, if you look at just the social impact bar for a moment, um, what I felt at the time, 13% of folks said their primary motivation was making impact. 
that surprised me as being pretty high. Uh, but since that time, we've seen that number continue to grow. Now, I think Q1's number is skewed, maybe because of the coronavirus going all the way to 53%. Um, also, we'll see how it trends over the year. But also on that specific webinar, we were really focused on impact investing and measurements and the like. Uh, so maybe that, that skewed the results somewhat. But I think the general trend is correct, that we're seeing more and more emphasis on behalf of investors and interest in doing good or making a social impact. So next slide, please. Um, so, you know, we have these three converging forces that can come together. What we learned last year was that in, there's investors that respond to milestone dates. Um, so this looks at the inflows that we saw across our funds ramping through the course of the year with an explosion in December uh, in particular. So we saw as much money flow into opportunity zones across our client base in December as we did in the pretty much the rest of the year combined almost. Uh, so massive amounts of investment flowing. The rapid sell-off that we saw in February and at least early this month in March um, was probably done without folks having a real well-thought plan on reinvestment or tax deferral. It was probably more driven by, let's just get out of the market. Um, so the 180-day clock is ticking, right? One of the nice things about opportunity zones is after you realize that gain, you have 180 days to figure out what to do with it. So what we're starting to monitor now very closely is how funds are starting to flow into the opportunity zone funds, how investors are moving money in. And if history is to repeat itself, you know, six months from February, March puts us August, September, we might see another spike like this into the market because we have lots of gains, again, lots of gains on the sideline that have been taken off and now ready to be invested. We've got a strong desire growing from investors to do good and to help. And then the asset classes that are, do well in opportunity zones are, tend to be uh, counter-cyclical. So all the forces seem to be lining up. Next slide, Ashley. So our solution, just real quick, uh, you can see sort of the tabs across the top, right? It's fund investments, compliance. Ashley did a good job talking about a lot of the rules. So we track all of those kinds of things. And then impact. And all of those things we put together because we believe that's what's special about Opportunity Zones is all of those things need to be treated together. Uh, just the last slide next then. Um, and so the, the, I thought this was important to point out because um, this is, comes from the, uh, the webinar we did earlier. We've partnered with Howard Buffett, who uh, is a professor at Columbia University, and he's created this um, impact measuring formula or tool he calls impact rate of return, IRR, to sort of align with the financial version thereof. Um, and what it does, we liked it because it's very algorithmic and actually produces a score in the same way you can produce an investment score from a financial perspective. We built in this capability to produce it from a from an um, efficiency of impact perspective. So for every dollar invested, What's the impact rate of return on that? And it measures across the, the five categories uh, listed there. Um, so this is a tool that we uh, are starting to see tremendous interest in um, as people uh, look at this. So um, 
I think the final point I'll make is that while impact reporting may ultimately be required for opportunity zones, the time is right to do that now, getting it done early, um, because the investors clearly care. The spirit of community that's emerged from this virus is uh, nothing short of amazing. And I think Opportunity Zones is, is a great way to help the country have sort of an equitable recovery, uh, not like um, the last one. Thanks for the time today, guys. Yeah, thank you, Reed. And uh, Jimmy, I'm going to turn it back over to you so that you can kind of coordinate the questions. And if I need to answer them, I'll jump in. Yeah, absolutely. And Ashley, if you could, um, uh, you could stop sharing your screen right now so we can kind of see me and everybody else a little bit more clearly. Um, actually, Reed, if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of hijack your poll here. I just started a poll here for our audience to, uh, to respond to. It's the same question you've been asking of your NES right, let's see. financial um, let's see. clients there. So I just launched this poll. Attendees are now viewing questions, it says. So if you can just kind of answer what your primary motivation is. This is an anonymous survey, so feel free to be, uh, be truthful here. And then we'll, uh, we'll let this go for another 20 seconds or so, and then... Uh, I'll end it and we'll get to the questions. Um, we've got several questions from the chat window and I got a couple via email as well before we started. So we're gonna get to those shortly here. Um, let's see where we are at here. Jack Sullivan, you've got a question I know. So you're on mute right now, Jack. I see you're there. You got your video on, looking good. So I'm gonna unmute you here. And Jack, why don't you go ahead and... Uh, Hi, Jimmy, good to see you. Good to see you too, Jack, go ahead. Uh, my question was pretty general. Uh, I just wanted to probe if there were uh, lists that were available publicly or through this web chat of funds that are focused primarily on OZBs. I know when the legislature originally started gaining traction, there was a lot of jumping in from real estate investors, but the uh, OZB investors were lagging. I wanted to know if there was anybody tracking their progress in a hope that their numbers are growing. Yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll hop in and answer that question. And uh, so I do track that, I do track some of that data at the Opportunity Zones database at opportunitydb.com. I have a list of funds there and you can filter by which ones are interested in business investing. Novogratic has a tremendous list of uh, funds that they're tracking, uh, and they even track how much capital all those funds have raised. And Ashley, I don't know if you know of any other resources that may be useful. Um, I know that EIG has a, uh, I know that they've got kind of a map that shows like, it's got a almost like hot zone. So it shows like the communities that have uh, put together initiatives that it also shows uh, funds that have made investments, and uh, and I think that it breaks it down via fund on that. Uh, I know that Opsites as well has some information on there. And Jimmy, I think that you've consolidated kind of a list of some of the exchanges where people can uh, list their projects and then that also uh, could potentially have funds as well. Yeah, I, I have, and I'm... Uh... Looking forward to sharing that list once I once I get that finalized, Ashley. But uh, yeah, there there are there are quite a few resources out there. I think we've probably hit the uh, the biggest ones. Um, Chris Wagner has a question. Chris, I'm going to unmute you now if you're there and wouldn't mind asking your question. Why don't you go ahead? Hi. <clears throat> yeah, I actually didn't have a question. Um, Kyle answered it for me. It was just about the PPP and whether or not uh, a business that's well capitalized uh, can still get. Uh, 
get the funds from uh, the loan from the from the from the bank. Okay, and then and then I do see. Yeah, Kyle did chime in. He said borrower must provide a good faith certification that the loan is necessary due to the uncertainty of current economic conditions caused by COVID nineteen. Uh, so yeah, you, it's it's not just as simple as. Uh, there are some restrictions, absolutely there. Um, let's see, our next question is from Gail Fitzer. You have a question about depreciation. Let me unmute you, Gail, and you can go ahead. Go ahead, Gail, if you're there. Yeah, can you hear me? I can, go ahead. Yeah, I was just wondering at the comments about depreciation against 2018 and 19 income or capital gains applied to only opportunity zone investments or any real estate investment? No, it's, it's any real estate investment. So, okay. you know, um, obviously one of the things that we're kind of focused on is opportunity zone stuff, but yeah, no, it applies to any real estate investment. Okay, and then I just had one other question if I could. Um, and that was just, what kind of delays do you expect? And, you know, a lot of these opportunity zone funds, we're talking about cash returns a couple years out or three years out due to the, renovation requirements. Um, so what do you think COVID-19 is going to do to that sort of timeline in terms of the cash returns on these investment funds? I tell you what, Gail, if I, uh, if I, if I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would be the next Warren Buffett, right? Um, well, I your best that, guess, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, that realistically that, uh, you know, that, we've seen pretty much the world go on pause for the last 30 days. And I can think, and I think that we can expect that to continue on at least for the short term. And the question then is going to be is how quickly does everything ramp back? Right. The good news is we, we had good solid economic fundamentals coming into this thing. Uh, the bad news is, is that we don't really know how wide that's going to affect us. And so I think that one of the things that we can do as leaders here is to continue to talk about how that, you know, that, that we're, you know, that regardless of when the returns are coming back, and I think that this goes into Reed's point about impact, is that this isn't all about returns in opportunity zones. So one of the right. benefits of opportunity zone investing is that we've given a return on the front end via the tax benefit that people have gotten by going into them as a whole. And so that serves to mitigate some of the timing about when the returns are actually going to start coming out. And, you know, it goes into kind of the, the genius of the legislation is that this program effectively kind of mitigates that uh, because of the benefit that it gives you for the taxes. And then, you know, this, the, the, the greatest benefit of it as a whole is the 10 year step up in basis to fair market value. So if our returns in the short term are pushed out a little bit, hey, we still get that long-term appreciation and the benefit that's going to happen, you know, after we hold it for 10 years with that patient capital. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for that answer there. Uh, before I move on to the next question, I'm going to end the poll here. Uh, which of the following best describes your primary motivation as an OZ investor? And actually a pretty even split among our crowd, uh, tax incentives, uh, just edges out the other two answers. Oh, I guess I hang on, it updated when I clicked end. We've got a tie between return on investment and tax incentives with social impact uh, rounding out the bunch coming in third place. So a little more capitalist uh, mercenary-like uh, audience we may have here. Uh, hey, Jimmy. Uh, we need to get some more do-gooders in here. Go ahead, Ashley. So Jimmy, one of the things that I did want to point out, and I appreciate the chat uh, function on these meetings, is that um, 
really run down that cap of in that there's not a hundred thousand dollar cap on the PPP loan and that the only cap is the loan amount of ten million dollars which isn't in I think that we may have it wrong on the slide as eight million dollars um, and that forgiveness is based on payroll mortgage interest rent and utilities and we'll obviously fix that in the slides before we send it back out I think to Howard's point is that he was saying that as they jumped into the economics of it for purposes of what they were really going to get from a forgiveness standpoint, that it was coming around $100,000 for them. And so I think a lot of it's going to depend on how much you actually have rolling in your business for payroll, mortgage interest, that kind of thing that you could show that was in effect prior to February 15th. So thank you, Kyle, for pointing that out. I do want to make sure I clarified that for everybody. And if you've got substantial payroll, you know, you ought to be really running this to ground with some experts. And I think that that's the lesson of it. Yep. No, that's, that's a good point, Ashley. Thank you. So uh, it is 4 p.m. Eastern time here. So if you have to drop off the call now at this point, I won't be offended. But Ashley, if you've got a few more minutes, we've got a few more questions uh, to go through. It should just take a few more minutes, I think, if you're up for it. I'm gonna yeah, absolutely. Up. Okay. So uh, Mike Patel, you've got a question. Uh, for us about, uh, let's see, about loan forgiveness. I'm going to unmute you, Mike. Mike, are you there? Go ahead and ask your question. <clears throat> yeah, basically, the property opened in July of last year. And therefore, the payroll, we don't have the payroll to substantiate the, uh, the loan forgiveness programs. How do we go about doing that? When did you, when did you start payroll? Uh, July, August. Yeah, so what they're going to do is they're going to uh, they're going to average it, right? So you're basically going to get it averaged from then up until now, and that that will then uh, factor into what you're ultimately able to apply for in the form of the loan, and then what you use now going forward will then determine what the forgiveness of it's going to be. That's the way that my understanding of it, uh, it you know, works. So I. I don't think that the fact that you, you know, you just started up in uh, July of last year is a, I don't think that's an issue at all. I think what it is, you know, when it becomes an issue for people is if they don't have uh, payroll established by February 15th of this year. Okay. All right. Uh, wait, so I got Kyle chiming in. Well, he actually put it in there to everybody. So if the business has not been over for a year, they'll average January and February 2020 payroll. Huh. Interesting. Good to know. Good to know. Um, got another question here, Ashley, from Anthea Chung. I'm going to unmute you, Anthea, and she has a question, or he has a question on uh, original use. Oh, yes. Um, first of all, thank you for the presentation. It's helpful. And the quick question on the original use is, um, I'm interested in a condo, but it was built like two years ago. Um, so some people have already moved in, and, but some units are still available and I'm buying from the builder. So this is a, it's not a secondhand purchase. Um, but I'm just wondering, does it still qualify for the original use? Yeah, so Anthea, we, um, we actually talked about that with respect to, you know, trying to buy it before a certificate of occupancy had issued, but um, that is one factor in kind of the substantial facts and circumstances test. And so you've got to weigh all of those factors in relative to whether or not it's actually been put into use or not. 
And if you, if you haven't put a renter in there and, you know, if there's not been somebody living in it, I would argue that, uh, that you got a pretty good shot for saying that, uh, that it's still original use. Any kind of documentation you recommend that we obtain so that we don't get into trouble down the road? Well, once again, right, it's kind of the safe harbor uh, of your audit trail, right? So the more documentation you can show on that, the better off you're going to be. So, you know, I mean, just kind of thoughts on that is that, you know, I'd go in there and, and take pictures and show that it's, you know, it's unoccupied, get some information from the developer to show that they've not, you know, that they've not sold the unit, leased it or anything else like that, maybe an attestation from them. And, uh, you know, I think that whatever you can put together uh, from a documentation standpoint to back that up, the better off you're going to be. Unfortunately, there's really not a whole lot you can do to pr almost prove a negative, right? <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Thank you. Thank, thank you for the question, Anthea. Um, next question we have comes from uh, Syed Rizvi. He has a question on 180-day uh, timing, when that clock starts and stops, and, and maybe some other deadlines as well. Syed, I've got you unmuted if you want to go ahead and ask your question. Uh, yes, yeah, so I purchased a property. I mean, I sold my property that I got capital gains from back in August of last year. And I created the Qualified Opportunity Fund at the end of the year. Um, so I, I, I thought my deadline was another 180 days, uh, like somewhere in the May time frame. Is that a, the correct understanding or is that going to be now moved to uh, September? So you did you place your money into the Qualified Opportunity Fund already? Yes, in okay. December. Yeah, so then what happens is, is that now it's the QOZB. Uh, you, you know, so once that happens, now you jump into the six-month and the year-end asset test. And so the QOF and accordingly now a QOZB, if you're going to drop the money down into it, will need to pass a six-month asset test and then a year-end asset test. So uh, presumably your six-month test, you said you, uh, you started in November? December. December. So your six-month test will be uh, in you know, whatever date it coincides with when you uh, elected to have started your fund. So you're going to want to start your fund prior to you actually receiving the capital in. So then your six-month test will be six months from the day that you started your fund. And then- okay you'll follow on with a year-end test at the end of that year. So within six months, you will need to have deployed 90% of the funds from your fund into qualified opportunity zone property, which either can be direct ownership of real estate or it can be uh, newly issued partnership or stock, right? So effectively what you could do is just before that test in June, and I would say just dump it in there by the end of May, is set up a QOZB, fund the QOZB, and then if you have a 31, or presumably it's gonna be a startup, so it'll be a 62 month written plan for how you're gonna deploy that capital, then you've got an additional 62 months to deploy that capital now. Mm, okay. And, and you've been actually helping me with that, so that's good, okay. Okay, thank, thank you for your question there, Syed. Um, I, I think that's all the live questions that we had in the chat window. I, if I, if I accidentally skipped over yours, I apologize. We're going to go through these uh, with a fine tooth comb later and, and we'll, we'll get back to you via email if you have any other questions. Um, actually, I did have a couple questions that came in via email if we still got some time for you here. Sure. 
All right, uh, this one's from, and Edson was actually just in here a minute ago, but I think he may have just dropped off, but we'll, we'll get this question answer, answered for him and for everyone else's benefit anyway here. Um, his question, Ashley, is if I open a qualified opportunity fund and investors invest into this fund, is there a reason and a benefit for me to set up the development company as a QOZB inside the QOF? What is the long-term benefit to me as the owner of a QOZB if I didn't invest my own capital gains into the business? Yeah, so once again, right, the, the biggest benefit of the Opportunity Zone legislation is that 10-year step-up in basis to fair market value. So when it comes to creating QOZBs and how you work the interplay with the cash of the QOZBs, if you're investing money into it, and particularly if you're taking outside investment into it, then you're going to want to be doing it into something that's going to actually generate enterprise value. So if you've got a closely held company that's just charging fees to like your development operations, you know, as a way for you to generate fees and to kind of shift that around on your balance sheet for either income tax purposes or for whatever purposes, then that's probably not something that's going to be real. Number one, real attractive to an investor. Um, and whether or not you want to fool with the opportunity zone legislation of that, because you don't necessarily get the value of it after a 10 year hold, right? Because you're not going to be able to sell it because, you know, it's not going to have other customers other than you. Now, the one thing I will say that might be a counter to that is that if you have a business that can provide services to your other businesses and you set that up as a QOZB, and then you've got the ability to expand that to providing services for other businesses and you can grow that company to where you actually generate enterprise value, that could be attractive. Another uh, you know, gentleman that, uh, that I actually talked to on one of these calls, uh, he was actually setting up an entity as a QOZB that was going to provide services to his other businesses. And then he had standard 90 to 120 day terms on his AR. And so effectively what he was able to do was inject capital into his non-opportunity zone businesses in the form of effectively 120 day working capital loan via his deferred compensate, you know, via his deferred cash that went into the opportunity zone. So he runs the money into the opportunity fund, drops it down into a QOZB, funds the first, you know, effectively three months worth of payroll with that. And then he's got 120 days now on his non-opportunity zone businesses that he's being able to fund with tax deferred money. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting play about where it actually would make sense to set up a QOZB that, um, that you're funding as an operation, even if it's kind of a wholly owned one. All right, good to know. I think we'll do uh, one more question here. This one came from Eric Lincoln in the, uh, in the chat window. I, unfortunately, it looks like Eric just dropped off, uh, but his question is, how will loan forgiveness income, if that is qualified as income, how will loan forgiveness income be counted against the 50% active business income test. Do you, do you have any uh, thoughts on that, Ashley? Oh, Ashley, I think you got muted, hang on. Go ahead. All right, yeah, sorry about that. Um, so the, in the, the statutes of, the, you know, of, of pretty much all of the legislation says the forgiveness of debt income will not count towards gross income for tax purposes. 
And so I can, I can imagine that that'll be basically the same thing, right? Is that it's going to be kind of a non-starter for purposes of the 50% income test. And, um, and so I, you know, I would say that it's probably not going to be factored in namely because if you're using it to fund operations that are inside of a zone and you meet the four tests of, you know, what classifies a 50% income that, you know, that getting a loan to pay those costs and then having that loan forgiven, I don't think that that's going to affect it one way or another. Good, good to know. So won't count against you. That's good to know. Uh, I think that we're going to wrap it up here, Ashley, unless you had anything else. Um, you know, if I could leave everybody with this, you know, uh, these are trying times, right? And, you know, I know that there's lots of rah-rah stuff going on out there, but as leaders inside of the Opportunity Zone community, we've got an opportunity right now to surge to the front of that and to organize our communities, to organize investors, to organize people that are doing the work uh, inside of our businesses, and to collectively breathe a breath of fresh air into the bad news and all the other stuff that's happening. And so I think that opportunity zones as a whole have gotten lots of bad media attention, but we've seen some really cool stuff happening. And I think that it's furthermore a chance for us to continue that, uh, that positive vibe of impact and of really making a difference. And most of all, by doing that by leadership, right? And the first people that we got to lead is ourselves. So, you know, when you wake up in the morning, be thankful for the things that you've got. Uh, you know, put the other stuff where it needs to be and, um, and surge forward on all of this. And we, uh, we remain here as a resource to try and help people out, to get these things going, to make them happen, and to answer, you know, further questions. So thanks again for everybody participating. Yeah, well put, Ashley. Uh, I would like to thank everyone for participating as well. Thanks for anyone who submitted questions. We got a lot of great questions in. I know we got a lot of them answered as well. I, I know we didn't get all of them answered. Um, we'll try to follow up individually with a few people if we did not answer your question today. And we will be following up via email with everybody. We'll send you uh, some of the resources that we discussed on the meeting today. And I think, Ashley, we want to give them an updated uh, version of the presentation deck as well. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, there's a few few mistakes in the presentation. Forgive us. This, uh, this stuff is changing in real time. There's, there was stuff literally changing uh, just, an, just an hour uh, before this meeting started. Uh, this is happening very quickly. So we're going to try to get that information as accurate as we can, and we'll get it sent out to all of you uh, just as soon as possible, if, if not later today, then tomorrow for sure. Um, Ashley, thanks again. And I know Reed and Howard had to drop off, but thanks to them as well. And uh, we'll be in touch with all of you shortly. Take care, everybody. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.